So turn to Micah. You, if you find Amos or Jonah, you just need to flip a little further, and you'll be in Micah. If you get to Nahum or Habakkuk, you've gone too far, and you need to go back just a few pages. And so somewhere around Amos, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Micah sits right in the middle of those. Let me encourage you, turn there in your Bible uh, so that you can look at and follow along as we walk through it. So why do a series on biblical justice? Why in the world, as I was asked a couple of weeks ago, do you just like controversy? And I was like, no, I really don't. Uh, but there's two major reasons, two big major reasons we're, we're jumping into this. The first is the world we're living in is crying out for justice. Everywhere we turn, we're hearing this cry for justice. Over the last few years, America has come to realize, been forced to realize that the laws of the civil rights era, which were important, which have produced a benefit, which have been helpful and necessary, they didn't solve the problems of racism in America. It still exists. This has been fanned into flame by mainstream media and social media, and so I, I, I have a sense it's probably not as big a problem as we perceive it is, but it is a problem and it needs to be considered uh, it has to be talked about, certainly for those that feel and, and have sensed the oppression and heart uh, hurt because of racism. Uh, over, over the last couple of years, the way our governing authorities have handled a worldwide pandemic, and I'm not talking about just the federal ones, obviously there's plenty to be upset with about them on either side of the aisle, but even at local level, state, county, even city leaders, there has been much disagreement and uh, frustration with what some people say is an injustice because they've done too much, and some people say is an injustice because they've not done enough to find a way through these circumstances. They've been called tyrannical and overstepping, and, and, and uh, then others have said you haven't done enough, and they're held account to, to doing more, but always calling out the injustice that our government has perpetrated on the people of America as they have, as we've walked through a very difficult season. And, and then, not to mention, in the middle of that, we walk through what I believe might just be, in my opinion, the most contentious presidential election that the nation has ever known. It's certainly the, the, the one I remember as the most contentious. I've never seen a presidential election more contentious. Maybe they're in history, maybe some history buffs would say, oh no, this is probably more contentious. I'm just saying, this is, to my knowledge, the most contentious presidential election, again, fanned into flame by media, by mainstream and social media. But the reality is, is that as a result of this last election cycle, uh, many people in the nation think that Biden was unjustly elected, that he really isn't our president, while others think that Donald Trump is just a walking injustice against America. Like everything about him is just an injustice against America. And, and, and the... the this doesn't even begin to touch on the many, many, many injustices we commit against each other on a daily basis, abortion, adultery, arrogance, and that's just the A's, right? Like we don't even get to the B's and C's of sin we commit. But over and over and over today, we're hearing cries for justice. Even if we're not using that word, people long for peace, they long for justice to reign, they long for this, this uh, idea that that people get what's right and good and evil is restrained. We long for that. Who doesn't long for that? Who, who are you talking to, whether Christian or non-Christian, that doesn't want that? Our, I think the world we live in is crying for it, and yet they don't, they don't know where to turn to find it. The second major reason 
I think it's necessary to do this, that we as your elders have talked about this and decided to go ahead and step into this, is that amidst all these cries for justice, the world doesn't know where to turn, but the church doesn't either, doesn't seem to me. God's people, the church, a people who are justified by faith, who are called to be a just people because they are justified, appear to be deeply divided on the issue of uh, justice and, and how that's to, not, not only what it is, but how it's to be applied. I'm guessing it may not ring true in our church exactly, but in the broader, in broader, broader terms, the American church, there are a few different streams of this idea of justice based on the number of voices that I've been listening to. I've been seeking to listen to, to several different perspectives and multiple perspectives and learn from all these different perspectives. And, and on the extremes, you have the progressive Christians, if we can call them Christians, but I'm just going to be as generous in this statement as possible. We have progressive Christians who lean towards justice as a social program. Now, that's all it is. It's just a social program, being gracious and merciful to the least of these, to those who don't deserve it. While more conservative Christians would lean uh, toward justice as everyone getting what they deserve. Well, if you think about that, then that's, that's not very hopeful at all if carried to its logical conclusion. But then there's what I would say are probably very solid, very trustworthy teachers with large platforms that even amongst these church leaders, there's still much division. In his book, Fault Lines, uh, I don't remember the tagline for it, but in his book, Fault Lines, Vody Bauckham looks at this, this division among church leaders and along, uh, among the, the more central perspectives of what justice is as a looming catastrophe to the American church. And he writes this, why are people in groups like the B.D. Anabwali, Tim Keller, Russell Moore, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, Nine Marks, the Gospel Coalition, and Together for the Gospel being identified with critical social justice on one side of the fault line, and people like John MacArthur, Tom Askell, Owen Strayan, Douglas Wilson, and R.C. Sproul being identified on the other now, here's the, here's the reality. Just two names from that, from that list of people, just to, to demonstrate, here's, here's the issue, right? And here's what's happening as they divide along these lines. On one side, you have a Matt Chandler who is on a video. You can watch a video of him saying, talking about how he is going to, to exercise affirmative action in the hiring of a pastor, a, a, a lead pastor for a church that, that is now one of their campuses that they're becoming, that, that's going to become an autonomous church, no longer a campus of the Village Church in Dallas, is going to become its own autonomous church and needs its own autonomous leadership. And he's looking for affirmative action. He would prefer an African-American over a white person, even if the white person, the Anglo, is more qualified to be the leader, right? If you don't understand why that's concerning, we can talk after. It is concerning, Right? And then on the other side of this fault line, you have a John MacArthur who's got years and years of ministry, but who during this last election cycle told the world in a public news interview that every real Christian, any real Christian will vote for Donald Trump. 
And he gave some excuses, and I don't disagree with all of or his reasoning. I don't disagree with all of his reasoning. If you've seen it, you know that there's, there's a little bit more context, but this is, the, this, this is the issue. On one hand, you've got a guy who is seeking to do affirmative action in hiring of church leaders, and, the other, and, 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 and is that all wrong, or is that okay, or, or what should be done, or what are we looking for? And on the other side, you've got a guy who attached voting for a president to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell me which one is more concerning. They're both bad. They're both concerning. But this is the this are the these are the leaders on the on the on the on the separate sides of this fault. And here's the here's here's my concern. The concern is not that leaders at that level with these prominent ministries, these big ministries, and these prominent positions in the American church and are viewed in in, in prominent places in the American church. I don't have a problem that they're having these discussions and even debates among one another that they're falling out in different ways of application. That's not my concern. Here's the, reality. Here's the reality. Some of this stuff we've got to debate, we've got to discuss. If we're ever going to get to truth, if we're going to ever come to a place where we begin to understand what the Bible really says, we've got to have people that say, this is what I think it means. And we've got to have people that say, this is what I think it means. And we've got to figure out how to tolerate one another long enough that we can figure out how to walk together. Here's the problem. The followers of these people are dividing out and tribalizing and pointing fingers and automatically calling one another heretics. In fact, I would suggest that there's probably people in this room, based on conversations I've had with people on both sides of this argument, that will no longer listen to John MacArthur because he said those things and no longer listen to Matt Chandler because he said those things, even though they have had a history of being godly teachers pointing people to Jesus Christ. But they're unable to listen because of this issue. Here's my concern. It's not that they're having them at this level. It's what's happening at the church level. Somewhere along the line, Christians have quit. We have ceased to unite around the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the great confessions of the Reformation. And we have tribalized over some secondary issue, although it's an important issue, some secondary issue of justice. We've got to have this conversation I'm not looking forward to it because I believe there's a residing unintentional division even in a church like ours. All the way through this, we're going to be praying like Bob, as we prayed as the elders the other night, um, prayed about this. Bob, Bob prayed something that's, I'm just going to encourage you, this become your prayer. That instead of looking at the Bible and looking at what biblical justice is and how it's applied, we stir up unity and not division. Here's what I guarantee you. If we stir up division in this church as we look at what the Bible says, that probably says more about us than it does what the Bible says about justice. Just a way forward, right? So just a way forward, like just as, as we think about this, as we're striving to walk through this, in the forward of Thaddeus Williams' book, Confronting Justice Without Compromising Truth. I would, I would affirm the whole book to you. The foreword that was written by John Perkins, a Christian leader and activist, is worth the, the price of admission. But, but I would commend that whole book to you. But John Perkins, in the foreword, writes this. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I'm just going to read a lengthy section. Words should be on the screen so you can follow along. He writes, Through my 60 years of working for justice, I offer four admonitions to the next generation of justice seekers. 
First, start with God. The problem of injustice is a God-sized problem. If we don't start with him first, whatever we're seeking ain't justice. Second, be one in Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, black, white, brown, rich, and poor, we are family. We are one blood. We are adopted by the same Father, saved by the same Son, filled with the same Spirit. Third, preach the gospel, the gospel of Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his death as our substitute, and his triumph over sin and death is good news for everyone. It is multicultural good news. In the blood of Jesus, we are able to truly see ourselves as one race, one blood. Here's the reality. This is a God-sized problem, and God has offered the solution in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why we always, every week, we stand in this place calling you to look at Jesus. At every disagreement, in every argument, every division, look at Jesus. Fourth and finally, teach truth. God's word is the standard of truth. If we're trying harder to align with the rising opinions of our day than with the Bible, then we ain't doing real justice. Now, I'm pretty confident because I've done a little bit of research on who John Perkins is and where he's from and some of his views. I'm pretty confident if we sat down and had a conversation, we would find many points of doctrine that we would disagree on. And in doing some research, I'm certain that there's some points of application of justice that we don't agree on. But I'm fairly confident, based on what he writes in this introduction, that on the things that matter most, we're lockstep. Churches need to hear this. God's people need to hear this. We need to hear this. For ourselves, for ourselves, and for the good of the mission we've been called to do, if we, God's justified people, are truly going to live just lives in an unjust world, we have to know more and do more than what the world calls justice. They aren't getting it right We have to know what God calls justice and how that justice is to be applied. And we have to give freedom to one another to grow into this, to see this and view this from different perspectives and apply it in slightly different ways. But we have to know what the Bible says clearly. We have to know the source of that justice and the necessary components of that justice. So while we are going to come in contact with many, many current events through this this series... It's never going to be about looking at the current events. It's always going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about being just, living justly in an unjust world. So, that's what this series is about. Let's jump into it. We're going to start by looking at a passage that's at the heart of the debate. It's a passage of scripture that's been co-opted by social justice warriors who have no desire to read the Bible or understand the God of the Bible or know the God of the Bible. But they use it oftentimes to to attack the church for our failures and to demand the church do what they want us to do and try to coerce and manipulate the church into action. But it is a passage of Scripture, and as we know, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for correcting, training in righteousness, equipping us for every good work. So we need to look at this passage. We need to understand what it says. So this is where we're going to start. We're going to seek to understand what God means by doing justice. And we're going to seek to set a stage for how that applies in our life as we look towards the next eight, nine weeks. I, I, don't, I don't count calendars really well, but it's something like that. Micah 6, chapter 1, or Micah ch- chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. We're going to read it, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig in to see what it says. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills, hills, sorry, hills, hear your voice. 
Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people Israel, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Father, help us now. Would you, by your Spirit, lead us into truth? That as I preach and explain and, and expound on these words, that any misspoken word or any incorrect word would fall away, but our hearts would be united, that that this would stir up unity among your people, that that, that we would be a people who are able to do what you require of your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the passage opens, verses 1 and 2, with a call into a divine courtroom. Like he's calling the created order to come and hear his indictment against his people Israel. Now I don't know about you, that's not somewhere I want to stand. (laughs) Like I don't want to be the defendant in that case. Although, if left to my own devices, I think I would be. I think we would be, and maybe at times should be except by his grace. But here, he's bringing this indictment against Israel, and he is, Micah, on his behalf, is going to voice and and make known his faithfulness and Israel's faithlessness. So let's just walk through this just a little bit, get our bearings in the passage. Verses 3 through 5, God's faithfulness is acknowledged. He shows us first. He comes to this place where he's first going to show us how he has been faithful. And the first way he does that is by asking a question. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And, and here's what God, God brought Israel relief, not burden. And here's, the, here, here's the thing. He's asking, how have I wearied you? There's a play on words between three and four that, that we can't see in the English because, well, English doesn't translate like Hebrew. But, but he says, how have I wearied you? For I brought you up. There's a play on words that you can see Micah is, is, is drawing out. He's saying, how have I brought you down when actually I brought you up? How have I burdened you when I actually relieved you? There's a way in which he's trying to show, I didn't do the things that you would accuse me of. I, I treated you with, with grace and mercy. I came to you and didn't bring burden for you, but I brought relief. God brought Israel relief, not burden. And actually, the, the rest of these verses, 3 through 5, he's going to show us how he did that. He's going to show us how he brought to, to, to Israel relief instead of burden. And so, so we see God brought Israel relief. 
not burden. Next we see in verses three, or verse 4, God redeemed Israel from slavery. For I brought you up. And that's where we see the balance of that. I, I, didn't, I didn't bear on you. I didn't bring burden to you. I brought you up. How did I bring you up? I brought you out. Or what did I bring you up from? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. I, re, I, I redeemed you. I brought you out. I, I freed you. I released you. It's kind of interesting because after, not, not, not long after they leave Egypt, they're like trying to figure out how they get back. And they're thinking that God's done something bad to them because they didn't have enough meat. They didn't have enough water. They, didn't have, they got tired of eating manna. I, who gets tired of, of being able to walk outdoors, grab your food, and eat this sweet bread? Like, I, I don't ever get tired of the rolls and the cinnamon butter at, at Texas Roadhouse. Have you ever gotten tired of something that good? Just imagine walking out and, and something, some bread-like substance laying out on the ground that you pick up and it tastes sweet like honey. How's that for ingratitude? What, did you bring us out here to die, they say? Did you, did you bring us out here so, so we could die in the wilderness? They begin to accuse God all along the way. You can see it in the history of, of their process walking in the desert and in the wilderness. Accusing God of burdening them too greatly. When in reality what he did was redeem them from slavery. God protected Israel from their enemies. Look at the next thing. So, so I relieve you by, I, and not burden you by bringing you up out of slavery in Egypt. I mean, even, oh my gosh, just think about this. Sorry, thoughts popping off in my head. Here they are in Egypt being told that they got to build this city for this leader. And, and all they can do is cry out to God. For 400 years they're in this slavery and they're crying out generation after generation. He brings him up, brings him out. Oh, I skipped one. He sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God protected Israel. No, nope, no, nope. God provided Israel with leaders. He didn't just bring them out and say, hey, find your way. He gave them people. Moses as the, as the lawgiver and as the, as the head and mediator of the, of the covenant. Aaron, the first priest that would serve as a representative between God and his people. Miriam, the sister of prophetess and poet. God gives them to Israel to lead them through the wilderness so that they're not wandering around blind and deaf and dumb, but so they've got God's leaders bringing leadership to God's people. A very necessary component of this. How do they know the way to the promised land if someone doesn't lead them? So he gives them these leaders. He relieves them of the burden, and yet they continue to accuse him of being burdened. God protects Israel from their enemies. The next one, we see it happen. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. If you know the story, Balak was king of Moab and the Israelites had been wandering around in the, de- in the wilderness for 40 years. They come out of the wilderness and they come to a place called, uh, uh, well, they come near Moab and Bo- uh, uh, Balak is concerned. He's scared. The people are afraid because of the numbers of Israelites and in addition to that, the stories that they had heard, that Israel had defeated other peoples, and so they're scared. And so Balak, he hires Balaam to come and curse Israel. If you know the story, Balaam four times pronounces blessings on Israel and not curses. Because God said, this is what you must say. 
God told Balaam, you can't say anything but what I tell you to say, and Balaam every time. He couldn't earn the money he'd been paid. He couldn't earn the stuff he'd been paid because God protected his people. And that's indicative of how God had protected and worked on behalf of his people all the way through the wilderness, all the way to the very end when they came to a place called Shittim, which is the very last place God delivered Israel to the promised land, and, and that's the next thing. They come to this place called Shittim to, 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 over to Gilgal. What happened from there to Gilgal? Shittim is the last place Israel stayed before crossing the Jordan. And if you know the story of this, so they encamp at Shittim. They're there for a little while. They get prepared to be brought across. And they're not faithful in this process. If you go back and read the story, there's lots of ways in which they failed. Some of them end up being judged ultimately. But God, with the people of Israel, brings them from this place, Shittim, and he brings them to the, to the edge of the Jordan River, stops the Jordan River from flowing so that, again, they're able to cross this body of water on dry ground, and they camp on the other side of the Jordan in Gilgal, their very first encampment. And yet God was with them all the way, even though they continued to sin against him, act as a stiff-necked people, and basically accuse him for burdening him. But burdening them. The point is made. All the details of Israel's constant rebellion are highlighted, but God proves his own faithfulness and his own righteousness by highlighting that he brought relief, not burden, to his people. And now it's time for the Israelites to answer. So, so you, what would you answer if you're fun, suddenly confronted with all the truth of who God is and what God's done for you? I don't know what I'd say exactly. I hope I'd have it within me to say something about Jesus and how he's taking care of all this. I'd probably be quaking a little bit. But look at their answer. And whether they said these words exactly or whether Mike is drawing them out of the principles of their life and the establishment of their, the, the ways that they're, the, the truths that their lives uh, present and, and demonstrate, I don't know exactly. No one really does. But this is how the answer comes. So they've been confronted. God is faithful. He's not burdening them. He's indicting them with their own sin. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What do I do? What do I bring in response to this? What, what, what do I give? And in their answer, their faithlessness is going to be exposed. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with, a calf, with, with calves a year old? That first one, that first offering, that's kind of a normal. That's, that's actually expected. In Le- Leviticus, I think it's nine, nine, Leviticus 9.3, this is the right age, the right sacrifice to bring before God as a sacrifice for sin. It's the right thing for a person to do. But the second one gets a little bit more intense, a little bit more exaggerated. If that's not enough, if, if the, a calf a year old is not enough, will, will, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Like they're going to this hyperbole, this exaggeration. This, is, is my sin so, so bad that I need to bring all this stuff, all these rams, all this oil to, to the amount that who has this number of rams and who has this amount of oil? But it gets even worse. Shall I get my firstborn? Is God going to require of me uh, my firstborn child? Is that what's going to be necessary for me to stand before my God? The fruit of my body for the, for the sin of my soul? Here's, here's what's shocking about this in their answer. Here's, here's what I think is revealed in their answer. Israel preferred sacrifice to mercy. Think about what they're doing. 
I don't come and confess and seek the mercy of this God who's provided for me and been righteous to me all the way through the wilderness. I don't come falling on my face seeking forgiveness and mercy from him. I seek a way to pay him off. I'm willing to sacrifice anything but myself. I'm willing to do anything to earn his grace to buy his favor, except obey. And it's in that, in that final one that I think we really see the second piece of this, that Israel pleads ignorance or pled ignorance to God's requirement. God hasn't kept his requirement from them. His law is replete with his requirement for his people. They tell, he, he tells him clearly how you're to act how you are to walk, how you are to live in relationship with me, how you are to live in relationship with one another. His law, his covenant with them that's spelled out over the first five books of the, of the Old Testament clearly demonstrates how they're to live in relationship with, with God, with one another, and in the world in which they live. He's left nothing out. And they're acting as if they don't know. They're pleading ignorance. And he comes to this place in verse 8. He says, he has told you, O man. Quit pleading ignorance. You know what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? He's not kept it secret. Quit pleading ignorance. Quit trying to buy him. Quit trying to pay him off. Walk in obedience to these things. This is what the Lord requires of you. Rather than doing the good and right thing, justice, love, and humility, they lived for themselves. They acted unjustly towards God's people, and they were faithless towards God. Let me just show you a couple of ways that that plays itself out just here in the book of Micah. Flip over to Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, and you will see that, there's, that Micah laments those who devise wickedness and work evil against God's people. Against God's people who work evil and devise wickedness against God's people. He laments about, he highlights the injustices of coveting another person's land and seizing that land from one another. The rich taking advantage, the rich and powerful taking advantage of the less uh, rich and powerful, oppressing the weak. Micah chapter 3 calls out leaders of Israel for hating good and loving evil. They fed off of the people of Israel instead of feeding the people of Israel. You can see that in chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. They have made what is straight crooked. They've misled Israel. They, have, they, have not, they may have said true things, but they said them in untrue ways, if you understand what I'm trying to say. They, they've been, they, they themselves have been bought off. They have pretended that God is with them, even though he's not. They have lived a lie. They have presented lies. They have led people in lies. They have taken advantage. And rather than doing the good and right thing, they live for themselves. They acted unjustly. And they didn't just do that towards God's people. They did that against God. Like, to sin against God's people is to sin against God. And to sin against God's people is a sin even against the people that God's people should be being a light to. Think about this. What's, what's the purpose of the church or God's people, even Israel, in the world? Is it for us to be exalted? 
but for God to be exalted through us. Israel would just be a light to the nations. And they failed. Their sin, even if perpetrated against one another, is a sin against God and a sin in the world, period. This is why injustice and justness, being just, is so important. And he shows us right here. He gives us a, a, a summation, a summary of what it is and what's required of God's people. God's people are required to reflect God's just character and steadfast love in their relationship with him and each other in an unjust world. I think essentially what the, another way to say what he says here in verse 8, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. God's people are required to reflect God's just character and steadfast love in their relationship with him and each other in an unjust world. So let's deal with each of these. What does it mean then to do justice, to reflect this just character, to, to do justice? And I think I would summarize that, define that as, as do the right thing according to the right standard. What's your standard for what's right and good? The world will tell you what they think is right and good. Your emotions and personal perspective will tell you what's right and good. But what's the right standard? Well, God gives us a standard. He shows us a standard in his law for his people, the, the, the Israelites, the old covenant. They had the law. They knew what they were supposed to do. They knew how to carry out justice. The, the word is mishpat. It's, 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 a, it's, it's used like 400 and some odd times in the Old Testament. It's a legal term that speaks of verdicts, making right decisions, casting a right verdict, making right judgments, and, and carrying out justice. God required the, the, the Israelites to live in obedience to him. He required the, the Israelites to, to treat one another a certain way. They, he, he required the Israelites. When something bad happened, he even had a way in which that would work out among his people. <laughs> and he even had a plan for them to live this way together in front of the whole world so that they would be a light to the nations. But God gives us a picture of it even. He gives us a picture Look, 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 look back in verse 5 where he says, O people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, what Balaam son of Beor answered him, what happened with, from, from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know what? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. It's another word that speaks to justice and doing the right thing according to the right standard. God exemplified that. So our standard first and foremost is the example God has set. What did God do? He relieved their burden. He redeemed them from slavery. He, protect, he provided their leadership. He protected them from enemies. And he brought them through all the way to the, 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 um, the promised land. He fulfilled his promises to them. He showed his righteousness. He showed his justice. He showed his carrying out the right thing according to the right standard. That's our first example. But, but where do we see the nature of God? Where do we see the examples of God working in the world? His word. So we turn to his word. God's word and God's nature, his examples ex ex exemplified and expressed in his word are that standard. And he calls us to do for others what he's done for us. You know, Kevin DeYoung in his, in his um, and, and not doing for other, against others what he wouldn't do against us. But, but Kevin DeYoung in, in an article, he writes, Gospel and Justice. He wrote this on the Gospel Coalition website. 
uh, on, on, a, on his blog there. But he writes this. He says, doing justice means following the rule of law, showing impartiality, paying what you promise, not stealing, not swindling, not taking bribes, and not taking advantage of the weak because they are too uninformed or too unconnected to stop you. So in that definition, in that expression, there's a lot of things that we shouldn't do, and, and, and really only one thing we should do, paying what you promised. Then later, and I don't know if it's first or, or later, maybe it became, came before this article, but DeYoung, Kevin DeYoung, alongside a guy named Greg Gilbert, who wrote the book, What is the Gospel? It's on the back table if you want a copy of that. Um, but dealing with social justice, the mission of the church, they write this book together, been extremely helpful. I would commend that to, book to you as well. But DeYoung and Gilbert adjust, address doing justice in this passage this way. Together they say, we should not steal, bribe, or cheat. Conversely, now we're going to see the other side of it, we should, when we are in a position, position to do so, render fair and impartial judgments. And at all times, in whatever calling, we should do good, not evil. Once again, what's our definition of good? How do we define what is good? According to our little bitty perspective? According to what feels right inside of our, makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside? Or do we define good according to God's word and according to God's nature? So we're called to do justice. Do the right thing according to the right standard. The, the, the point here is, is, is doing justice not only about what we shouldn't do, but also what we should be doing. We shouldn't do evil, but we should purposely do good. We shouldn't do what, power, what the powerful and leaders in Israel did to the less powerful but we should do for one another according to our means what God did for us. I'm not saying, I'm not, hear me. I am not asking you to take his place or pretend to be God. Well, that's the farthest thing. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But we should act as his representatives. As a people who have been made holy as he is holy, who have been made just as he is just, his nature should be reflecting off of us. That just and righteous nature should be reflected in all of our actions. That should guide what we do, what we don't do. Doing the right thing according to the, according to the right standard, that is doing justice. Second, he calls us to love kindness. Now, you'll recognize already, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, the series is called Love Mercy. This says love kindness. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, the reality is a lot of people struggle with how to interpret the word that's used there in the Hebrew. The word is chesed, and it's, uh, it's divine. Um, uh, it speaks to loyalty and <clears throat> uh, covenant faithfulness. I think there's a right focus, a joint obligation, if you will. God has expressed chesed toward his people, towards his covenant people. He's been loyal to them. He's been faithful to them. He's been kind to them. He's been merciful to them. The King James, I think, is probably, maybe there was a translation before the King James that, that would have translated it this way, but the, the King James is where I think we get the word mercy from. Here in, the, here in the ESV, you see that they chose kindness. But I want you to point, I want to point out to you, <clears throat> if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see that there's a little footnote attached to that word kindness. And if you look and see what that footnote says, it defines another, another way to translate that word is steadfast love. So I am titling this, this second point, love, steadfast love. I like that translation better. Not because I'm some great Hebrew scholar. I've taken a couple of classes that makes me just dangerous enough to, to tell you a lie. <laughs> but 
The reason I prefer that translation in this context is that when you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible that was likely being used in Jesus' day, the people who translated from Hebrew into Greek chose the word agape to replace the word chesed. That tells me that this is about God's love, his unconditional, not emotional, not that emotions are totally devoid or that love's devoid, but this committed love, this steadfast love, this love that proactively, purposefully acts for the good of another person. It, 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 at the cost of oneself, you do good to people who you love. And so I think that that's the word that, that, that he's calling us to love in, delight in, steadfast love, to give love that we've received from God to other people. God's clearly demonstrated this kind of love and faithfulness towards the Israelites. He, he didn't smite them over and over, though they should have been, and, and I think we would have probably all lost patience with them and, and probably left them in the desert to die, but that's not what he did. He loved them in a steadfast way and now, as his people who have received his love, he is calling them and requiring them. And his law puts it all into practice. It, all, it puts it all into, it codifies it. it. It says this is what this looks like. But you can't separate loving, steadfast love from doing justice. The list doesn't allow for that. It's not like you can do justice one day and do these things work together. And Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, it quotes from a guy named Bruce Walke that... that, that uh, that wrote a commentary on this passage, and he shows the interplay between hesed and, um, and mishpat. And he writes this. Mishpat puts the emphasis on action. Hesed puts it on attitude or motive behind the action. And that's why I'm saying that we should love steadfast love, which simply means do the right thing for the right reason. There's lots of people who appear to be doing the right thing who have selfish motives and self-exaltation and manipulation, coercion. It appears they're doing the right thing, but the underlying issue, Matthew 23 is a great example where the Pharisees looked very moral, looked very together, looked like a very just and righteous people. But they were whitewashed tombs. They were dead inside. So we can't just do the right thing according to the right standard. We must do the right thing according to the right reason. Because we've received this has said this agape love, we are to extend to one another this hesed or agape love. That's the whole thing, is that that's what we're doing what God has done. We're simply reflecting his nature and, 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 and reflecting his love on other people. What he has done for us, we are extending to others. And then third, he says, walk humbly. Do the right thing with a right view of self in relation to God and others. Though they had different roles, there were leaders in Israel. God gave them leaders for a purpose, but leaders took advantage. They began to sin against God's people. They had different roles, different levels of responsibility, different levels of wealth and power across the nation. Here's the reality. People are all equal as we stand before God as his image bearers. Every one of us, all people from all time and all places are equal. It's his image in us that creates that equality horizontally and establishes his exaltation over us. It's his image. We're simply an image. All we are is a reflection. We are not God. 
we're reflections of him. We're image bearers of him. But he's God. So his exaltation and our equality. That's, that's what his image does for us. Israel had seen God's power. They knew God's grace. He highlights how he had worked it out for them to see. And what did they do? They rejected him. They exalted themselves over him. Demanded God to act with them a certain way. Demanded he do certain things. And they mistreated one another and they treated each other as if they weren't equal. To live justly as God requires. You can't just do the right thing according to the right reason or the right standards. You have to do that. But you also have to do it for the right reason. And it's going to require that we humble ourselves and have a right view of ourselves before God and others. And the whole New Testament gets to that. Biblical justice. Listen, let me summarize this to give us uh, some ground that we can begin to work from. Biblical justice will always... In fact, I, I, let me just say this. Let me, let me make sure that this is clear. I don't want to just brush past this. We cannot do biblical justice if all three of these components aren't part of us doing biblical justice. You cannot live rightly for the wrong reasons and it be right. You cannot have all the right reasons, all the right motives, and not do the right thing, and it be justice. You cannot exalt yourself over God or others, even if it appears you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. You cannot exalt yourself over others in any way. If you do, if, if any of these three things fail, that's not justice. Biblical justice will always recognize God is God, and we are not. You will always keep him preeminent and premier over us. We will always be beneath him, subject to him, called to obedience before him, living according to his example and his word. Biblical justice will always recognize the equality of all people from all places as image bearers of God. Always see equality. I just need to say this. I, I think it's an issue of the day. It is so disheartening to see Christian people who have had to confess their sinfulness, their own depravity, turn around and in debates, instead of debating and talking about the disagreement and the information that we disagree upon. I expect the world to do this. It's so disheartening when I see Christians begin to attack one another's character. There are people in this room. There's people in this church that aren't in this room. I could pull up stuff off your social media feed that you apologize as you're, as you're putting these things out. Sorry, but not sorry. Repent. You are not better than anyone, nor is anyone better than you. We all carry the image of God. And if you cannot debate and discuss the issues of the day without tearing down the character of a person, keep your mouth shut. Because that is not justice. I don't, well, I hope you know who I'm talking to. If you're wondering if you're one of those, come and talk to me. I'll let you know. As gently and graciously as I can. We've got to walk in repentance. If we're going to do justice, we cannot 
act this way. Recognize God is God. We are not. Recognize the equality of all people from all places as image bearers of God. Declare the sinfulness of sin. It's offense against God and it's harm against humanity. There's this big push today to be just against people that are running, running into sin. And so out of love, we need, in justice, we need to call sin, sin. For the good of God's people and for the good of, our, uh, 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 of the world around us, we've got to call sin, sin, no matter what form it comes in. If it's a riot that is in response to years of oppression, that riot is sin. If it is someone who is oppressing people to the point they long to riot, that is sin. If it's living outside of God's standard for uh, 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 God's sexual ethic and calling that, that that's got to be, we got to deal with it. We need to say it in the right way. We need to be as loving and gentle as possible, but we must declare the sinfulness of sin. Biblical justice always will. Biblical justice will always relieve as able, as able, the burden of the persecuted and hold accountable the persecutor. We will seek to serve the one who is hurting. And the reality is that everyone hurting has not been being actually persecuted. Just because somebody's hurting doesn't mean that they're persecuted. But we will care for people. And justice calls us to that. What the Israelites should have been doing is, is taking care of the poor instead of taking advantage of them. They should have been taking care of the weak instead of feeding off of them. And so, like God did for the whole nation, he relieved them of their burden. We are called to reflect this characteristic of God in this world. And we, biblical justice, will always rely on God's steadfast love and faithfulness to bring relief. Don't assume you got this in you. None of us do. That's why it's so necessary for for leaders in churches and church members to sit down and have these dis- these discussions and conversations because none of it ha- none of us have it in ourselves to actually do justice, actually love steadfast love, actually walk humbly if we are not already receiving it from the Lord. We must rely on him and his empowering to do the things he's called us to do. Now let me just I, 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 let me just get to this, and, and I, I, I've kind of made a jump, and I, I didn't allow you the opportunity to make it with me. I've begun to apply that to us. Is it really still relevant? I mean, this is an Old Testament passage. It's an indictment against Israel. Is it really relevant to us? Is this really what God's people are called to do and what's required of us? Well, let, me, let me just let you decide. Actually, I say that, and then I'm going to make a decision for you at the end, but you don't have to agree with me. How about the greatest commandments? Mark 12, 29 through 31, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these other places, he says, the whole law and prophets hang on these two. All of the Old Testament, all of the Old Covenant, all, everything that God has commanded, hang on these two. Love God. He's trained us, taught us, told us what is required to interact and walk in relationship with Him. And He's called us what it's called to, to walk in relationship with others. 
He's given us the, the vertical expectation and requirement, and he's given us the horizontal. Does that not, not sound like do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with your God? It's the same exact things. To, to love God, we must obey him. We must submit before him. We must do as he's called us to do. We can't say we love God if we don't. And if we're not loving others, we're not loving God either. But the call is to love others as we love ourselves, to do for others what God has done for us. Applications of this could, to, to these greatest commandments could be verses like the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish what others would do to you, or so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. How many people want to be taken advantage of? How, want to be, how many of you want to be oppressed? Like, give me permission, I'll oppress you. It's not going to happen, right? No, nobody wants that. Well, why in the world would we do it? But we're being told here what not to do and what to do. Don't, don't do what you wouldn't want done. Do what you would want done to yourself. Do that to others. This is the whole law and prophets. Sounds a lot like love your neighbor as yourself. You're a great commission. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the way to the end of the age. Always to the end of the age. The golden rule calls us to proactively go out and treat others the way we want to be treated. The great commission calls us to do for others what Jesus did for us. He made us his disciple. He saw to it that we were baptized. He taught us how to obey. You think about this. If you follow this into the book of Acts, you see him giving us leaders, giving us his word so that we can live rightly in this world. And that that replication, that replication process can continue to happen so that here we are 2,000 years later receiving the relief of God, being redeemed out of slavery, being given leaders, protected from evil with the promise of one day entering into a promised land. How can we say we love neighbors as we love ourselves if we don't go out and make disciples? How can we say we're doing to others what we would have done to us if we won't declare sin, sin, and teach them truth and show them the nature of God and teach them the word of God? This is the whole New Testament. In fact, I would just point to one more place, the book of 1 John, which we studied just a few months ago. If you were here, you remember the light and love of life. The whole letter is framed around the practicing of God's righteousness, walking in the light, and loving one another as we've been loved. I could show you example after example in this letter as he calls us to be righteous and as he calls us to love one another. I'll show you too. 1 John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever Axed justly is just. That's what he's saying. As he is righteous or as he is just. 1 John 3, 7. So, so this call, expectation, requirement of righteousness. 1 John 3, 16 through 17. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. That word just by chance happens to be agape. The same word that the Greek people translated mish, or, or, uh uh, said with, right, agape. By this we know, agape, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. There's a requirement, expectation, lay down our, but, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love, how does God's agape, his chesed, if you will, abide in him? 
Is it still relevant that we do justice, that we love steadfast love, that we walk humbly with our God? The point of this whole sermon is this. God's people are required to reflect God's just character and steadfast love in their relationship with him and each other in an unjust world. The reason we're doing this is because we would answer that question, yes. I've shown you a lot of stuff. This week, I'm going to give you a bunch of resources to look at and consider. I'm going to give you, a, a, if you want to read and study further as we go through this stuff, you'll, you'll be able to read. There's all kind of books I can show you to read, good, good ones, less than good ones. And then just show you what it looks like, the difference between what the world is calling justice and what the Bible shows as justice. I, I, I'll give you a table that, that, that kind of spells that out. But I'd encourage you, sit down and think about this. Consider it. Our world is crying out for it, and God has given it to us. So now we get to give it to them. Let's pray.